Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. For the last edition of this year, I'm joined by my colleague Jeff Dyer. And we're going to be looking back at 2017 towards 2018 and in particular at the impact that Donald Trump has had on America's role in the world and the world scene in general. Jeff, so obviously the year began with Trump's inauguration in January. He'd run an incredibly radical-sounding campaign, talking about completely changing America's relationship with the world. Has he delivered at all, do you think? I think one way to think about it is that at the time of the inauguration, you heard a lot of people saying that American democracy will cope with Donald Trump but that the liberal international order would not cope with an American president like that who really wanted to tear up so many fundamental relationships. I think a year in, and with many caveats, I would say that actually I think the opposite has turned out to be in some ways the case over the course of the year. I think that the liberal order in all sorts of ways has been challenged, but is by and large kind of holding together and the really important functions. But an American democracy has been much more weakened than I'd imagine would be the case. And I, I think it's not just about the Trump presidency and the cronyism and the corruption and the, the dishonesty of it, but just the way that that has leaked into the institutional Republican Party, the way that the Republican Party has been moulded in his image. I think that's a potential, a very corrosive thing about the future of American democracy. But in terms of the way the liberal order is working, I mean, obviously American reputation American prestige have been substantially damaged because he's a deeply divisive and unpopular figure in lots of parts of the world, particularly in Western Europe, but really in lots of parts of the world apart from the Middle East. But if you really stand back and look at it, I think it's important to stress that the world trading system is still operating basically as it has before. Trade hasn't dipped in any way. He could do something much more dramatic in his second, third years, but he hasn't really scuppered the world trading system in an important way yet. And you look at countries like Germany's had an election this year, Japan's had an election this year, South Korea's had an election. All these allies have had big elections, and the basic alliance they have with America has not really been questioned, despite all the provocations, all the things that Trump has said. So the underlying structure of America's position in the world is still holding together for the time being. So I actually think that in many ways, the real killer blow to America role of the world might not be the election of Donald Trump, it would be the re-election of Donald Trump. I think a lot of countries are looking around and just waiting and seeing and hoping that he's a bit of a, almost a fluke, and that normal service will be resumed whenever he leaves office. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the case. An American friend of mine put it quite nicely where he said that a lot of America's allies are treating this like the regency period in Britain when Britain temporarily had a crazy king, George III, and other people ran the show while George III talked to trees in Hyde Park or whatever it was he was doing, and they hoped that in due course a sane king would return and that this was more or less how the allies were treating America. And I put that actually to one of America's foreign policy gurus worked in several governments. And he said, yeah, that's actually how a lot of us inside the United States are also in the foreign policy establishment regarding it, that they're hoping that they can manage Trump in some way and that eventually he'll turn up just to be an aberration and some more normal president will come back in. But I think you know, that could be what happened. But as you say, the whole question of how America is changing internally and whether 
even if Trump goes, you're going to have another president playing by these new rules that he's established, I think is probably the big question. And that's why I think the thing people should focus on the most is the Republican Party, because in many ways, they were the backbone of the more sort of internationalist tradition in American foreign policy. And if something has fundamentally shifted in the party, which you can see, for instance, in the way that Republican voters have dramatically shifted their views on Russia, for instance, in the last few years, if something really has changed in the party, then I think Trump will not just be an aberration. There'll be something that comes after him that reflects some of the instincts that he's tried to impart. But I think that one of the things that is still unclear, trying to analyse it, both sitting as a journalist, but also, I guess, even more pressingly, if you're one of the allies, is is Trump an isolationist or isn't he? So that he's made these disparaging statements about NATO and they must all pay up and why are we even doing this, but then rode back from it a bit and the policy people below him will say, well, look what's actually happening on the ground. We have deployed troops in the Baltic states. We are keeping sanctions tight on Russia. Similarly in Asia, it seemed to me on his recent big trip, very mixed messages. He's in some ways being highly assertive towards North Korea. He's not confronting China at the moment, being very friendly towards Xi Jinping. But is that because that's a preparation for giving China a kind of sphere of influence that the Chinese want? Or is it some other kind of Trumpian instinct. It's hard to read, isn't it? It is. I think that after one year, the overall impression is of a complete incoherence in the foreign policy on many key issues. I mean, you've had a series of cases where you have Trump making a big announcement, often completely directed towards some sort of domestic political constituency and just allowing him to say that I fulfilled a campaign promise. Meanwhile, the bureaucracy is still fulfilling a policy really set in stage by the previous administration. The status quo is still in place. So you have something like the Iran deal, for instance, where he threatens to decertify Iran, but actually in practice it's not clear what he actually has done. His announcement last week about Israel and moving the embassy, he announced he's moving the embassy and then two seconds later signs a waiver saying that he's not moving the embassy. So there's a whole series of things where you have Trump pointing in one direction and threatening to change things quite dramatically, but the bureaucracy pulling in a very different direction. Where that will really come to a head, I suspect, the next year is over North Korea, where rhetorically he's almost set himself up to attack North Korea because he said, I will handle, I will sort this out. I've got this under control, when clearly he isn't capable of stopping the North Korean nuclear program. So how he reconciles that with the the inevitable pressure you'll have that this would be a massively escalatory step if he was to attack North Korea, I don't really know. Yeah. And I must say that it's been a couple of months now since I've been to Washington, but there does seem to be a growing concern amongst the foreign policy establishment, sorry to keep using that term, that actually maybe he's going to do this. You see it reflected in the press, you know, well-connected journalists like Evan Osnos and so on saying we're moving towards a war now with North Korea. And people like Bill Burns, who was Hillary Clinton's deputy, but a diplomat of great experience, worked for both Republican and Democrats, said to me, actually at an event we did here in the FT, that he was uncomfortably reminded of the atmosphere in Washington ahead of the Iraq war in 2003, Mm. that what had been unthinkable suddenly becomes thinkable. War plans are drawn up. People begin to talk themselves into the idea that, well, maybe a conflict is doable, is even a good idea. I think there are two schools of thought of that. One is that that's exactly what's happening. In some ways, the most significant statements have not been by Trump himself, but by his national security advisor, General H.R. McMaster, who has said a number of very tough things about North Korea. He said that they are undeterrable. And he's been quietly making the intellectual case, if you like, for a preventive attack against North Korea. The alternative viewpoint would be that actually 
America understands that North Korea now has this nuclear capability and is trying to re-establish deterrence. And the way you do that is by having to threaten that you will take military action uh, in certain circumstances. And that actually what's going on is we've become a bit squeamish the last couple of decades. We've forgotten the rather brutal logic that nuclear deterrence actually requires, actually requires you to be quite tough in that way. And that's what's going on. But really what's happening behind the scenes is very hard to tell. Yeah. I mean, it seems a bit like brinksmanship, again, of a Cold War variety where you take yourself up to the brink of nuclear war and the hope that the other guy backs down. But as yet, there's not much sign of North Korea doing that. Although also Tillerson, the Secretary of State, has dangled just today the prospect of talks with North Korea. But then again, he gets contradicted by Trump on Twitter sometimes when he appears to be doing that. Oh, exactly. But you know, although we know so little about what North Koreans actually think about these things, the one thing we do seem to conclude is that they have decided, or Kim Jong-un has decided, that for the preservation of his regime, he needs a nuclear weapon capability. And that's what he's going for. And there's very little, it seems, that's going to actually pull him back from it or to deter him from that. And as we look ahead to 2018, do you think that this is an issue that's going to come to a head? One, that's sort of the assumption that this can't go on for much longer, that the North Koreans are said to be within, possibly within a year, of developing this ballistic nuclear missile that can hit the West Coast of the United States or maybe the whole of the United States, and therefore this must come to a head. But then I suppose there's an alternative school of thought that says, well, Trump, of all presidents, is capable of changing on a dime and forgetting what he'd said before and that maybe this whole thing will de-escalate. That is possible. But I mean, with every single test that the North Koreans conduct, every nuclear test, every missile launch they conduct, they are establishing the reality that they are essentially a nuclear weapons power. They might not quite have the missile range that could take a warhead to the continental US. But if they're not there yet, they're quite close to it. So at some stage in the next year, one would imagine there will be this point where America has to sort of conclude, are we going to accept this? Or are we going to do something about it? So in that sense, it is coming to a head. But as you say, Trump is the one guy who could actually just move on and say something else and not feel that he was boxed in by the statements he's made thus far. Mm. And I mean, you, before your stint in Washington, you were in Beijing. And how do you think that the East Asians, I mean, China, but also America's allies, South Korea and Japan, are thinking about this? I mean, are they thinking that essentially they're now hostage to the whims of a very, very unpredictable American president? I think for the South Koreans and the Japanese, especially the South Koreans, that's exactly how they feel. I mean, for them, it would be a disaster if the US was to do this. All the war game scenarios suggest that tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people would die if there was some sort of conflict. And so for them to hear serious politicians in the US like Lindsey Graham suggest that this is a price that America should be worth paying in order to eliminate the North Korean nuclear program. That's a very, very tough thing for them to hear. And so I think there's going to be a huge amount of nervousness in Seoul, in Tokyo, but also in China about what exactly Trump is going to do over this. So just to conclude, I mean, I think it's inevitable if we're looking ahead to 2018 that Korea looks like the issue of the moment, and maybe that'll be the case. But um, what else could surprise us? Because generally, actually, the thing you're looking at can often be the wrong thing and something else comes up. What are the big issues, particularly those that might draw in the sole superpower of the United States over the next year? I mean, there's a whole series of things that could play out. Obviously, we have the Russian investigation is going to reach some sort of, one would imagine, conclusion over the next year where we'll find out more about why it was the, the Trump campaign and the Trump administration seems so rhetorically sympathetic to Russia. That's going to bring up the whole issue of the US-Russian relationship into very sharp relief. I think the other issue to maybe pay very close attention to is Iran. 
It's kind of been a bit of a sleeper over the last year, but it is striking at how sceptical about Iran most of the senior people in the administration are. And it could become even more so if it turns out that Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, becomes the Secretary of State, which is one of the rumours that has been playing out. And so you're going to have a set of people who are very sceptical of Iran, who think that the Iran deal was essentially that the US got snowed and are itching to do something about it to try and shake that up. And we'll be looking for ways to do that. And they have a president who is very sympathetic to that. So I think that Iran is another issue that could potentially become front and centre. OK, well, I guess we'll find out over the course of the next 12 months. And I look forward to talking to you about those issues in 2018. But for now, that's it for this week and indeed for this year. Until next year, goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.